11FS offices in London for episode 109 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you China's digital currency, MasterCard make more blockchain moves, and Kakao go cuckoo for crypto. I'm your host Simon Taylor and returning guest is the infamous Anthony Macy. How are you, infamous Anthony Macy? Warm. <laughs> air conditioning does not seem to extend to WeWork. Weirdly, this room is usually quite good for air conditioning. Uh, it you must know? be all the hot air coming out of your mouth. Sorry. Indeed, clearly. Um, <laughs> and this podcast generally. Um, let's get on with the news, though. People don't care about the state of this room. They care about the state of crypto. And um, first story coming from the theblockcrypto.com. Insurance giant Allianz is creating a JPM coin-like payment token. And the project is in, quote advanced stages, which um, always sounds like they've got some weird disease and it's in its advanced stages. But the German insurance uh, is giant even, is set to launch blockchain-based payment token, um, similar to JPM coin. And they claim the token aims to simplify and accelerate cross-border insurance payments for its corporate customers across 200 uh, countries and territories and pegged against the US dollar. Um, it feels a little bit like the year of the stable coin on this one, Anthony. How did, how did you read this? Was this uh, wildly exciting or not surprising? Um, the opposite of both of those. So um, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> well, uh, not particularly surprising. I imagine we're going to see a lot more of these. Um, mm. People jumping on the bandwagon saying, look, I did this as well. Mm. Um, uh, it may not be the case that Allianz in you know, specifically in this case, are doing that. But it kind of like, what? what's the point? Mm. Um, I think a lot of people had the same question with JPM coin, at least with their global footprint. You kind of look at it and go, actually, yeah, I can see why JPM coin might make sense. But but it's something interesting about a big global insurer because uh, one, one of the things I've uh, witnessed is uh, there are sub-markets, for instance, where uh, the insurers do good challenger banks and or brands or the MNOs do good challenger banks across sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, because they don't have an incumbent set of views about how the world works. And they, they're they sort of able to go execute Greenfield in a way that a larger organization might struggle. Is there something about bringing in the payments capability and, and in-housing it and insourcing it a little bit? Perhaps. I think if, if I was an insurer, especially a large one, uh, maybe a reinsurer, I'd be more concerned about premium loss accounts. So insurers have this big problem where you have the big insurer at the top and then you have like at the very, very bottom, your mom and pop mm-hmm. kind of insurers who provide local policies in their village, wherever it may be. And the issue that you have is that if you're trying to fulfill a claim, it takes a long time because you're trying to get the liquidity from the top of the house down to the bottom of the house. Mm-hmm. So how do the insurers solve that? They place liquidity further down the chain. But then, of course, they have no visibility of that liquidity. Yeah. So mum and pop can then go use that to build an extension on their house, and then they need to settle a claim. And it's like, oh, we need to raise a mortgage in order to pay this claim off. Yeah. Um, and there have been instances where some of the larger insurers and some of the large insurers have looked down into their chain of custody and said, oh, by the way, do you have this money? Can you send us a statement evidencing that? And they go, yeah, sure, we'll send that to you tomorrow. And then the following day, they receive a statement where the money's then been transferred into the premium loss account. So, I mean, if you're looking for visibility over the transaction chain, then that might make sense for payments, but you still have to fulfill the liquidity and actually 
provide the settlement when that needs to go to a third party that's outside of your ecosystem. And that's always going to be the issue here. Yeah, and, and that sounds like a problem that's worth solving, um, that sort of knowing where the payment is. Um, I think it's hard to say from this one uh, what the problem is that they're trying to um, solve. Yes, they say simplify uh, cross-border insurance payments, um, but I wonder uh, there's uh, kind of you know, a real clear uh basic problem that you can articulate in a sentence. Um, you know, they talk about pegging the token. Um, they talk about um, the project team being at advanced stages. They talk about being able to move it internationally. But it's not really clear on for who and why. And I think... I think um, maybe for their innovation team to show a deliverable. Well, yeah, and, and, and it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, but... I, or is it just the case that the, the press really here haven't caught, you know, somebody in the innovation team does have a really clear view of what problem it solves for their clients or for their business and it's just not been translated and, and the press have got excited about it's a stable coin. Uh, and that's a big issue. So I think that comes down to the tightness of me- media comms. Um, as you know, I mean, we worked together for a long time. One of the things that we were always very, very tight on is the wording of the media comms. So not saying something just for the sake of saying something, but only saying something if you actually had something to say. And I think if you have a vagueness of comms, you're then leaving leading to a situation where you have these kinds of conversations. Is it something? Is it something? Truth is, no one will know. Hopefully someone within Allianz knows, and um, we'll, we'll get to see the results of that at some point. Fingers crossed. And, and stepping back from that whole stablecoin token space, how are you seeing that evolve? Is there, are there lessons to be learned um, by uh, sort of people interested in payments from what's happening in the idea of tokenizing cash, as it were? Um, it depends on if you're truly trying to tokenize cash, um, so kind of similar to what... We're looking at with a number of banks around utility settlement coin, which yeah. is truly taking cash, tokenizing it, and then you've got a real asset value. Versus whether or not you're, you've basically got a glorified e-money platform, mm-hmm. um, and then you have exchange values and exchange costs within your e-money platform. So you can never truly peg to the underlying fiat because there's always going to be the costs involved. So if you've got one to one, as soon as you perform a transaction, you've immediately not got one to one anymore, yeah. and that's why you see the volatility spreads. I think in a lot of so-called stable coins. Um, my real question is, would be, why do you need one? Um, mm-hmm. What value are they really adding over other things apart from to pump the price of things like Bitcoin? Well, it's interesting though. You could argue the same about like what value does Apple Pay really add? You can see it from a consumer side, but yeah. for everybody else, they lose. Like the underlying infrastructure is still there. It's still got cost. You've abstracted away the customer, but you've solved the customer problem. So if this solves a customer problem, does it, does it matter that it's not really fiat underneath it and they've created another layer of abstraction? For if it been like, Sort of, I think. I think about TransferWise, for instance. TransferWise, quote unquote, to a banker isn't doing much new, but actually, from a customer perspective, it's doing loads of things new. It feels like it's instant, and it feels like it's um, way cheaper. Absolutely, that goes back to my point about stablecoins and pumping the price of Bitcoin, because the consumer problem you're solving there is raw around liquidity and access to market in things mm. like cryptocurrency or crypto yeah. assets than it is really solving a real consumer problem. So you know, it's not like a stablecoin suddenly going to help you buy coffee more easily. Yeah. Um, which I think was a lot of the touted use cases that this solves for payments. Versus, say, an Apple Pay. But but then you've got a, a Jack Dorsey with Square Cash who is very interested in crypto and, and is arguably, to me, you know, one of the best product managers on the planet. Twitter and Square speak for themselves. Square is a $35 billion market cap business that everybody said was a silly gimmick 10 years ago. Like, what's, Do you think he's seeing something in this concept of crypto that is, is a little bit different to just abstracting the underlying infrastructure? Well, you've got... Twitter on the one hand, and you've got Square on the other. Um, if he could bring the two together, I think he'd probably see that as quite powerful. And mm. that's probably where his mind is searching. And what he's basically looking for, I would imagine, is um, 
the solution to that problem. Whether that's crypto or something else, he's got more than enough time and money, um, lots and lots and lots of money in order to explore. Very good point. All right. Um, speaking of people exploring, um, next story comes from the blockcrypto.com as well. Uh, and messaging giant Kakao are set to launch their own crypto wallet called Clip uh, later this year. The South Korea-based giant is preparing to launch its own uh, wallet. And uh, they note Clip has released a teasing site ahead of its um, sort of second half of the year launch. Uh, the wallet's been developed by their subsidiary, GroundX, and will support the company's native token, Clay, spelt with uh, a K-L-A-Y. And I think what's interesting about Kakao is just how large they are in South Korea. This is a massive organization um, that has, uh, you know, hundreds of, well, tens of millions of users, at least in South Korea, uh, is is sort of a social network come wallet, come fintech. Um, they're a really interesting organization. And them playing with crypto could be something uh, as a wallet that starts to stand out. Again, is this them just having a play with a subsidiary or is this something that's been driven more by Libra? Um, what do you think is happening here? I think it's, I mean, it depends because the, the rate of change in smaller companies is obviously much, much faster than large companies. But I, I would imagine that this has been development um, a lot longer than Libra and the press announcement. So it's something that they've probably been thinking about and, and been working towards. I guess the real question from my perspective is, is this interesting within South Korea? Quite likely. Is it interesting outside of South Korea? Probably not immediately, but it may start to influence things. I imagine that a number of people around the world would be looking at this as a potential test case for them to maybe extrapolate and make some of the decisions of what needs to happen in their local jurisdictions and their local markets. What's interesting is the South Korean market uh, is um, kind of really quite unique in a lot of senses, especially with their relationship with crypto. You know, they they were a massive part. You know, the Korean won was a massive part of the crypto markets during the 2017 bubble. It was at one point reported that nearly a third of all South Koreans owned and held some level of, of crypto investment. And that's set against the context of, of gambling being illegal there. Uh, I wonder how much is this is trying to capitalize on the market aspects of that versus um, solving some of the underlying infrastructure problems that somebody that is effectively an internet company come telco that has services in community, entertainment, fashion, finance, transportation, and video games. Is this then, again, trying to become that platform company that you see uh, maybe WeChat and maybe um, Alibaba have sort of been able to become? Quite possibly. I mean, if the idea is to um, drive platform and then the kind of platform scaling that we all kind of aspire to and all hope to see, then that probably makes more sense. Um, you raised the point around gambling. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not the South Koreans actually care too much about all of those great things that you mentioned in regards to infrastructure, or they just cared about the volatility because they couldn't get that in traditional gambling. But it's interesting that the the super app model has worked in Asia a few times. Uh, Grab are now making a play for that in, in the ride-hailing space. So Gojek, um, there are you know, Indian examples as well. Paytm is sort of heading that way. These super apps have all been Web 2.0 stacks. Is there a limitation of that sort of cloud-based Web 2.0 stack that is that is the traditional you know, um, Facebook-style, WeChat-style centralized platform that some of these organizations are playing around with? Or again, is this the is this them getting older and starting to do the equivalent of of you know kind of innovation team does PR? Don't know. 
on that bombshell, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's time for a quick chill. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the wonderful folks at R3. Shout out to Tog McDonald, friend of the show. Uh, it's been a big year for R3, the enterprise software firm behind Corda. Uh, Corda is fast becoming the gold standard in enterprise blockchain technology because it's an out-of-the-box platform built specifically for businesses that come in two versions, of course, open source and enterprise, both interoperable and compatible. You can get started on open source and migrate to enterprise as your business requirements evolve. And Corda, uh, the Corda platform offers the best of both worlds. It's backed by a community of over 200 application builders and consumers, and you can download Corda open source on GitHub today or visit r3.com to download the Corda Enterprise on a trial basis. Trial it out. Alrighty, on with the show. Um, apparently, according to Engadget.com, China's official digital currency is nearly ready. So the People's Bank of China has revealed that its digital currency can now uh, said to be ready after five years of work. Um, it'll rely on a two-tier split. The People's Bank uh, on top of commercial banks below, uh, ostensibly to help deal with the sheer size of China's economy and population. It also won't entirely rely on the blockchain that forms the backbone of cryptocurrencies. So do we know anything about this? That's a pretty confusing set of statements there from Engadget. Um, no, I think is the, the short answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can extrapolate and we can guess. Um, I, I think that anyone who's been in the space for more than five minutes has probably had conversations around some of the positive impacts you can have to monetary policy by injecting a large amount of transparency around how uh, money pools, where the liquidity sits, how much, it, um, how often it moves, through what industries, uh, through what kind of merchants. And when you've got that kind of visibility, you can predict a great deal around what's going to happen with your economy much ahead of time. So you can start to see bubbles forming. Yeah. More importantly, you can start to see them collapsing so that you can try and take... Um, You'd have a real-time view of the money flow throughout the economy. It's it's the ultimate sort of um, dashboard of everything that's happening. Yeah, and or privacy invasion. Well, and there's always yeah a hard uh, a fine line between well not a very fine line a pretty, <laughs> a pretty clear distinction at some ends. And you know China is the home of the social credit score as well, whereby you know, it is it is common for people's credit scores to be informed by other things like social behaviour and, and and beyond. Um, so it wouldn't surprise that the, the single state would look at something like this to uh, to have that visibility. Absolutely. But I wonder, you, the, the interesting line is it doesn't entirely rely on a blockchain. Explore that a little bit because I think there's a lot of uh, misconception that it's like blockchain or other technologies, whereas actually DLT and or blockchain-based technologies tend to be an inspiration for and a part of a solution, but they very rarely are the whole thing if you're building something for an economy the size of China. Absolutely. To think that it's the solution for everything is patently stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, and we encounter people all the time that you know blockchain is the solution end-to-end. Well, it can't possibly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, effectively, blockchain is back-end infrastructure. It's part of the reason why it's so difficult to convey to people why it's so important and what it can actually do. So much the same way as, and it's not a perfect analogy, so I apologise to the more geeky among you, but it's part of the reason why if you're talking about TCP IP, mm-hmm. but then you're referring to a web page, which is a, a level of abstraction beyond that, you don't necessarily join the two together. And the, the real use case there is the ability to present information Um, any information you want to anyone in the world at any time. Mm -hmm. And when you get up to that user level, that's what's really interesting. 
Um, I think that when you're talking about this kind of thing, where you're trying to manage your entire economy's currency, especially when you have such stringent currency controls in your country, it probably makes sense to be able to permission that in a very, very specific mm-hmm. um, way. Kind of ironic that Bitcoin was built for censorship resistance, and now it looks like China might be using something blockchain-like in order to issue their currency. Oh, well, so there is uh, the concept of um, like one of the things with Bitcoin is is it was one of the first examples of money with conditions. So um, I can you know I can create a set of conditions. I'd argue around, it's not money, but carry on. Well, um, the ability to transact value with a set of conditions yeah. around it. So if this happens, then do that. There's, yeah. there's a very basic set of uh, conditions that you can build so that transactions occur between wallets. And uh, how terrifying is that though in a country that has its own reputational system for social credit scoring? So you could limit the ability for someone to earn money based on their social score. Um, you can. F- we talk about financial exclusion and inclusion. You could create that as part of a rule set mm-hmm. when you've got the oversight of both a reputational system and complete control over your monetary system. Uh, of course. And then the flip side of that is you could also make things really convenient and easy, like taxation, you know, sales tax at the point of sale, rather than trying to collect it in an administrative process at the end of the day. Absolutely. And so the the ability to have money with rules around it, money a transaction with a set of rules. Imagine if every time... Um, I went to make do any kind of transaction at the point of sale. The tax was just kind of figured out for us, and there weren't businesses on the back end spending you know, ninety days later working with spreadsheets trying to figure all of this stuff out and figure out what the liability is for the taxman. So all of these things, you know, like anything, like a hammer, can be a really great way to build something, or it can be a murder weapon. Like the tool itself is not the problem. It's That's how the extreme. You, you went there, you know. Yeah. You, Great tool to build something or a murder weapon. You could just say, or to break something. I mean, <laughs> You've got to go with the extreme metaphors, man. It's kind of my MO. Um, interesting one that uh, we've seen China be so vocal about the use of um, central bank digital currency. And of course, around the world, we see slightly different approaches. You know, utility settlement coin has been more of the Western approach. Do you think we'll see more um, central bank interest in, in this sort of thing? And, and, and what might different central banks see in it? Because it's I think we've speculated on what China's does, but what might a, a European or, or a, a US or, or some other central bank or Federal Reserve start to see in that? I think the difficulty with everything that you talked about and that there's some, some great potential there with rule set based money is that the more complex you make any kind of technical system, the more likely it is to break. <laughs> um, and I think that's the major concern, certainly for uh, Western economies. So with the central banks that I've spoken to and engaged with, generally, they're of the view that it's something that is of interest, potentially. Mm. However, with certain caveats, and the major caveats is how do you make it simple enough that it's unlikely to break? Because if you can't use money, that's quite a big deal. Yeah. Um, but complex enough that it actually adds real value on top of the systems that we have today. Yeah. Um, and, you know, nobody's saying that physical cash is perfect, especially people like Dave Birch, um, uh. who thinks it's, you know, literally the spawn of the devil. But, um, it, it, it does work, and that's the thing. You need a system, a monetary system, that continues to work in situations where it doesn't. There's something about the low-tech nature of cash that's absolutely. really um, sort of anti-fragile, and that's really, really powerful. And I think where China maybe stands apart a little bit is because of the way in which their system works, they can dictate exactly 
what can and can't be done. Whereas you contrast this with the Bank of England, who, as part of their real-time gross settlement upgrade, have said, well, look, we accept that this technology could be there in the future. Um, we want to increase access to central bank money for fintechs. We want to be open to uh, the concepts around innovation. But what we uh, what we absolutely uh, don't want to do is say that we think that uh, tokens and or blockchain are the right solution for us in, in this decade, necessarily. Absolutely. And I imagine that's part of the reason why they're saying with blockchain elements or how have they phrased it. Mm. So they're probably looking in a similar way. They, they want to create a multi-layered currency system because there, there is reasons why you want central bank issued or state issued currency and then commercial paper on top. So that they need that multi-layered system within what they're building. Um, and blockchain won't be applicable to all of it. It'll be applicable to parts of it. And that's probably what they're doing. Although I don't know why they didn't just turn their mining power and say, we own Bitcoin, which they kind of do. Mm. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little bit of speculation there. Um, no, but they, they have sort of talked about cryptocurrencies being unruly, and I think it's that um, sort of central top-down control is less compatible with censorship resistance. And but, the thing is about this, that, I mean, if central banks do start issuing crypto, then it really will be a cryptocurrency rather than just a crypto asset. So mm. you won't just be exchanging assets of value, you will actually be exchanging something that does qualify as money. A currency with a capital C. Um, all right, next story comes from Finextra.com and uh, MasterCard are going to take on counterfeiters with quote-unquote blockchain tech. Um, the giant are going to use blockchain tech to track the provenance of a limited edition fashion items as part of a showcase of collection from designers and artists. It's been conducted with retailer Fred Siegel Sunset um, and customers will be able to scan labels of designer items with a QR code that will trace each step of the product journey. Um, this has been done before, right? Yeah, and it's just uh, it's just nothingy. I mean, in, in the regards of what, what they're talking about. So if you take something like um, what Everledger have done or what Provenance have done, um, you know, there's some quite interesting pieces there. The fact they're focusing on high-end items, I think probably something that you could take as a positive and mm. applaud that because at least they're focusing on a specific segment and actually trying to get something that works from a product point of view. But if they're talking QR codes on labels, you just fake the QR code. I mean, it's not particularly complex. It's like fine art, right? You have fine art fakes and it's all about establishing the provenance. So you can establish perfect provenance of fine art up until the point where you can't. You're still trying to link a physical item to a digital system. Mm -hmm. And where that linkage occurs, you're always going to have an issue. Yeah, I think a lot of people have talked about you know, scanning QR codes, but if I just swap the QR code, I've got how good's the QR code. So the, the QR code was the right one all the way through, but the item may have changed. And, and there's always that physical meets digital kind of issue. Absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about the Everledger proposition was that they actually take a proper scan of the diamond itself. So you can analyze what the diamond looks like compared to what its record is. So you're actually creating that physical to digital linkage, mm -hmm. which I think is very, very difficult with other items. Well, uh, the, I think there are people in the commodities industry now looking at how do they get cameras into factories at other parts of the world to take photos and then give a geolocation to several different nodes operated by several different entities that would audit within Wi-Fi and or cellular distance. So it's kind of nerdy, but you fly a drone through a factory, it takes a photo and sends it to six different parties who validate it. Hack the drone. Yeah, and, and so there's always this... Um, there's always the, Reality to digital is always that issue. It's always it's that last mile digital. problem. It, it, it really is. So I, I want to give Mascara a, a bit of credit here because I think the, they are in a really interesting position to potentially drive scale. So the fact that somebody's done it before doesn't mean that it's not interesting in given who they are. 
given that they have access to a good chunk of the world's banks and a good chunk of the world's merchants, if this was something that were to be commercialized, they'd be in an interesting position to do it. And it's been a great use case for a long time in some instances. Take your point about the physical to digital aside, but... If I was to take my Cinecal for just 0.01 of a second mm-hmm. and have a think about MasterCard and their positioning, one of the things that potentially is interesting about MasterCard is that because they could follow potentially the chain of payments, mm-hmm. they might be able to follow the, the chain of custody for the physical item that's being sold in a different way as well. Yeah. So you can actually identify at point of sale who purchased a couture item and then track it via that mechanism. And that's a different type of linkage. So what you're then linking is the person that made the physical payment to the physical item at that point in time. Or at least the card that did, and then, in theory, the, the uh, issuer of the card would know who the, know who the person is. No, the individual is, yeah. yeah. So if the individual were then to sell on that couture item, then you know that that person did, at some point, own that item. But you still have the problem of identifying that, that really is the item they haven't just created a copy. And if it was bought in cash, then you're screwed. And Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. But it, generally good for the high-value goods that are bought on cards. Uh, and with all these things, you're always going to solve some of the problem for some of the people, not all of the problem for all of the people and you've got to get started somewhere so um generally i think it's um it's it's not crypto but it's cryptography it's not um a blockchain but it's arguably dlt this uh, ibm have done a lot in space the shipping companies are doing a lot in this space it seems to be getting momentum and not going away i think the blockchain id stuff they're doing is more interesting yeah yeah we'll have to come back to that one uh, all righty coindesk.com sec guidance is giving ammunition to a lawsuit claiming that xrp is an unregistered security ah. A a new amended complaint against Ripple draws on the SEC's framework for digital assets to outline how XRP might in fact be a security. Um, The filing also cites California advertising law in addition to federal securities law to argue that the investors were misled by Ripple's promotion of XRP. Uh, While the case is a year old um, and not yet received um, class action status, the new complaint is the first that Ripple must respond to with a substantive answer. Um, So what I think there's been a number of complaints against Ripple. They've always successfully managed to come out with uh, ways of managing that through through the legal process. Uh, and continue about uh, continue about their business. Um, the interesting point for me here is um, that a court will have to perform effectively the Howey test on uh, Ripple and or XRP, whichever way you choose to slice and dice it, uh, which is going to be going to make for interesting reading. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Yeah. So um, I, I think that the interesting thing here isn't just that it's Ripple; it's the fact that we're going to have to have, I imagine, um, an official stand on what That's is the or key. isn't. This could have been anyone. It, yeah. it, could have been, uh, it could have been a whole bunch of things that look and feel a bit like securities and one could argue either way. Yeah, I mean, so not all systems are quite centralised to something like Ripple, but you could say draw similar parallels with, uh, and I'm going to draw some hate for this, but something like Ethereum. Mm. So that there are very known actors within the Ethereum Foundation that um, were involved in the pre-sale. I mean, mm. we went to the early meetups and we, we have, I still have the printed documentation of what the um, kind of investment prospectus slash pre-sale documentation looks like. And I, I think regulators would take a very, very dim view of that if it were to ever end up in court. So I imagine that a lot of the big raises, um, if they've got any sense whatsoever, are looking at this very, very closely with their lawyers and will continue to watch what happens here. Indeed. Uh, I think it really does feel like it's coming to crunch time for all things regulation and crypto assets through the course of 2019. There's been a lot of guidance. um, And of course, the SEC had recently uh, launched their own guidance. And of course, um, we have um, our our good friends at the FCA have recently uh, launched their guidance as well. Uh, And before we get into the stories that we didn't have time to cover, 
cover, we were actually joined by Samantha Emery, who's the FCA interim head of department, who was actually giving us an overview of the FCA's crypto asset guidance related to the last couple of weeks. And, and, and regulatory clarity is something that numerous players in the crypto space have actually craved because um, it's, it's been really uncertain for a little while. And there are things that one could argue are genuinely novel. Um, and the FCA's position on this is, is pretty interesting. So let's hear from Samantha now and then um, maybe, maybe take a look at some comments. Thanks for having me. So we published our final guidance on crypto assets two weeks ago. This was something that I'm sure you've all been waiting for, but it was actually something that we committed to do as part of the crypto asset task force reports, which we published last October. So the reason why we've decided to publish is the crypto asset market is complex. We know it's rapidly developing and we think by providing clarity, we can provide greater market integrity and consumer protection for the crypto asset market. I think first thing to say is just a bit of context. We think the crypto asset market in the UK is relatively small. We think that only 2% of the daily global trade in crypto assets happens in the UK. And our own consumer research, which you can find a summary of on our website, actually suggests that only 3% of the UK population has bought or sold crypto assets. So our guidance sets out which crypto assets might fall within the regulation and shares some of the obligations that firms using these crypto assets have, like ensuring they have the correct permissions, as well as those crypto assets that are outside the perimeter and where regulatory protections might not extend to consumers, which is really important. In terms of feedback, we had 92 responses as part of the consultation and everyone broadly agreed with our assessment of the perimeter. We took note where respondents had questions or concerns, and we've basically tried to answer these as part of the final guidance. For example, some respondents were actually unsure about the difference between exchange and utility tokens. These were two categories that we developed as part of the Crypto Asset Task Force. We've decided to revamp these categories to make the taxonomy clearer and easier to understand. Fundamentally, it's just important for people to know whether tokens are regulated or unregulated. If they're regulated, they're one of two things. They're security tokens or they're e-money tokens. Any token that isn't an e-money token or a security token will be an unregulated token. So the key thing here for consumers is they should be aware that they have limited regulatory protections if they're using these types of tokens. You won't have access to the financial services compensation scheme for one. The guidance goes into more detail, actually explaining exactly what it takes to constitute a security or an e-money token. But again, the important distinction between regulated and unregulated tokens are the rights that they provide. So where firms are using security or e-money tokens, they need to make sure that they're appropriately authorised. Where these authorised firms use unregulated tokens they should be aware that they still need to comply with the individual conduct rules under the senior managers and certification regime, as well as the FCA's principles for business. As part of this, we also provided a brief update on stablecoins, which is something that I'm sure you guys have covered off plenty recently. It's something that respondents wanted us to focus on too. So stablecoins refer to models where attempts are made to actually stabilise the volatility associated with crypto assets. We don't actually use this term as we don't think it's very helpful. So-called stablecoins come in a variety of structures with different associated rights. 
Again, depending on how they're structured, they could be many things and fall into any one of our categories. We definitely recommend reading the guidance with our broader perimeter guidance manual, but if you have any further questions, please just let us know. All right, interesting views there from the FCA that um, appear to give us views on you know, very clearly what is a security, what is uh, an e-money token, and what isn't. For listeners' benefit, we listen to that thing about four or five times uh, over and over. If you are interested in crypto assets in the UK, and, and indeed um, a really clear articulation of, of how the how a regulator views crypto assets, I would listen to that several times over. I thought it was from, tremendously well done by, uh, by, by the FCA. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that um, the FCA have been very good at is taking a front foot on a lot of these things. Mm. So we've been seeing guidance come out from um, the FCA very, very early on. They've done a great deal of work um, over in their innovation team to try and really lead with this. So I think it's not surprising that they've released guidance that maybe is a little bit ahead of the curve for some of the other jurisdictions. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out on the global stage. So what I find really interesting about this is um, the regulatory guidance starting to become clearer. And I know that, obviously I'm going to say this because I work for a bank, but um, one of the big criticisms of large banks is their unwillingness, apparently, to move on these kinds of things. But it's largely been due to the regulatory uncertainty. So as we get more and more clarity, hopefully you'll get more and more institutional comfort with what these things actually mean and how we might actually start to engage with them. And it's interesting, there's been a lot of quote-unquote institutional demand out there, uh, certainly with high net worth and or retail to potentially get access to these assets and, and different types of asset classes. And, and, and in a, a market where uh, not much volatility was around for a long time and, and there was a, an investor search for yield, this was a space that could have legitimate interests for, for many involved and that clarity is only helpful. Absolutely. I think um, institutions will continue to kind of review that as to whether or not it's just looking for price exposure or if clients genuinely want that kind of mm-hmm. risk level as part of their portfolios. But th- the short answer is nothing's going to happen unless there's regulatory certainty around the w- way in which those assets are going to need to be um, classified and, and held. Interesting pattern. Okay, time for stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, Cointelegraph.com, the UK tax authority, requests user data from crypto uh, exchanges, according to a report. Uh, Coindesk.com, the Coinbase UK are dropping support for Zcash. Interesting um, timing following recent FCA guidance. Uh, Coindesk.com, Goldman Sachs analysts say uh, now is a good time to buy Bitcoin, apparently. Uh, Did they? Or was this that tweet by Pomp? Uh, I think there was uh, some guidance that sort of did an assessment of where the market is, and it said that there is a there is a cyclical pattern, and it's a Goldman Sachs um, slide with like short term targets and, a, and a, a genuine analysis of price action. Do your own research, people. Could be a bag holder. Yes, indeed. Um, always do your own research. Do never never invest in anything you can't afford to lose. Without question, that's just good advice. Story from the uh, the FT, the Was and Crypto Wonga, uh, good old FT Alphaville. All right, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from, of course, friend of the show, Todd McDonald. Two shout-outs in a single week. He is a lucky Todd McDonald. Oh, we should have quoted Preston. He'd love that. <laughs> That's the future. All right. Um, story from Tom McDonald. Uh, incredible use case combining Corda blockchain and other new novel ways, not just copying today's world. Corda cash insurer plus digital wallets on trucks equals heart. Nice work, Commerce Bank and Daimler. And of course, um, R3's uh, Richard 
Kroner, sorry, Philip Kroner, my apologies. Uh, this is actually a story from Ledger Insights that he's talking about. And uh, Daimler, uh, of course, the owner of Mercedes and Commerce Bank, are piloting uh, blockchain digital cash uh, for machine payments. So this is the idea of uh, machine-to-machine pay- payments like um, fuel payments, um, where a truck could... Um, prevent fraud um, and mean that the truck drivers were not having to carry cash um, and prevent fuel card scams where criminals copy the fuel card and the PIN number being entered. Automated payments would mean drivers can focus on other tasks and it reduces the need for all of the reconciliation and expenses that truck drivers have to manage and and, and God knows what else. Um, So interesting that they're just trying to automate the payment experience for some of that stuff and and getting away from the cards. Um, Any thoughts on this one, Anthony? Car payments don't work for this kind of thing because they're not cost-effective. But then if you're fueling a lorry, that's quite an expensive thing to do, so I think it's kind of moot. Um, I think it's probably a good testbed for future payments. So I think in an IoT world, machine-to-machine is something that everyone's banging on about. You're going to need those microtransactions. The promise of Bitcoin isn't really living up to that, hence everyone's excitement around potentially Lightning and other Layer 2 propositions to, to facilitate this i guess um yeah i mean it's interesting enough it's good to see cross industries start to work with something rather than it being purely focused in financial services so yeah let, let's have more real use cases uh, what i like about this is is to exactly to your point earlier about uh the digital to physical world actually digital to digital machine to machine payments truck that is really this truck that is really in this place at this time that's sending its little gps signal and has some unique reference uh is really at that truck stop which is really pumping that fuel and or energy well, yes and no. So it's digital to digital in regards to the actual payment mechanism, but it's still analog to digital in regards to the identification of the truck. So if you can fake the identity of the truck when you pull up to the fuel stop, you can fill up your car and then Daimler or whoever your uh, logistics supplier is then gets charged. In theory, that gets harder and harder with time versus the simplicity of just simple um, fuel card fraud is is I take the card, I take the pin from the driver and uh, then I can sort of... uh, And fuel card fraud is a really, really big problem. So it's interesting that this is one of those examples where somebody started with a real problem and coming up with with potential solutions for it. Uh, And it's it's sort of almost that proof of these things in this place at this time uh, seem to be uh, gaining some traction and solving a problem. So I, I hope they do well. I think we'll probably see a lot more like this from R3 and others as well. Uh, so fingers crossed. Alrighty. Um, thank you so much, Anthony Macy, for joining me as always. So where can people find out more about you and Barclays? Um, probably on the internet somewhere. I'm on the internet. You're lurking the internet. I do lurk on the internet. Dank memes. Oh, I um, actually appeared in a list. You know how much I love lists. Um, yeah. For Lattice 80, look down the list. Um, you weren't on there, Simon, just, just saying. Yeah, no, um, although there are many, many of those lists um, which... That you pay for, that you pay for. No, no, <laughs> never, genuinely never paid to be on one of those. But apparently, um, in some some of those Twitter influencer lists, um, I appeared above, like, Max Levchin from PayPal, and I was like, I immediately question any list that puts me above, like, PayPal Mafia in fintech or finance because he built PayPal and then went on to build a firm. That is the definition of influence and capable. So. I'm just surprised. Like, I, I come on the show reasonably regularly and I tell people, no, don't follow me, don't listen to what I have to say, and yet they still do. So um, thanks, I guess. Yeah, it's um, kind of so, weird, isn't yeah. it? Um, just to remind you, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and we create truly digital propositions 
solutions, working with banks, big techs, and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. If you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Um, and if you're already subscribed, please, please throw us a review. Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com if you want to discuss tokenization or your project. Um, big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, uh, producers Laura Petrick and Hannah, Alex, our editor, and thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. PTK, the standard.